You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Maybe because it's easier than being a rock star. I'm James L. Sutter. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Mareska. <laughs> and this is episode 112, Whirlwind World Building. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited to welcome James Sutter to the program. Hi, James. Hi, thanks for having me. It's very exciting to have you on. Um, Can we launch right into the always fun? Tell us a little bit about yourself, James. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, my name is James L. Sutter. And uh, from a world building perspective, I'm probably best known as the co-creator of the Pathfinder and Starfinder role-playing games. So, uh, you know, I worked on both of those for many years and was also in charge of the Pathfinder novel line from Paizo and Tor. Um, I've also worked on Dungeons and Dragons. I've done comic books, video games. Uh, I've got two Pathfinder novels, Death's Heretic and the Redemption Engine. And uh, I actually recently uh, released, <laughs> took a took a strange turn and released my first queer young adult contemporary romance novel, which is called Dark Hearts. And it's all about falling in love with the boy who stole your chance to be a rock star. So <laughs> that's what I'm doing uh, right now, along with writing the ongoing Starfinder comic book series for Paizo and Dynamite. The second issue of that just came out. And so I'm doing that, but I still, of course, you know, I'm always working on game stuff as well, uh, mostly for Paizo and Wizards of the Coast. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's what I've been doing for about 20 years now. So you're not you're not busy at all then. No, no, not at all. (laughs) So I, I have a question about like stole your chance to be a rock star. Is it like took your audition or is it like? like supernaturally stole the opportunity. Like No, like. no, it's, you know, it's funny. When I was originally writing it, I was like, well, I've got to put some sort of supernatural element in, right? Because I like, I'm a fantasy and science fiction guy. That's what I'd spent my whole career doing. But it just was more fun to just write it normal. <laughs> and so uh, the premise of the story is that the main character formed a band in middle school with his best friends. And they, you know, did kind of well for themselves. But then everybody's egos got big and he stormed out. And then the band got huge without him. So now Ooh. everybody else in the band are is world famous pop stars, and he's stuck in a normal you know Seattle high school life. And so the book starts when you know it's been several years. He's very resentful, and he comes back into contact with the lead singer, and realizes that underneath you know their frenemy status. Uh, he's maybe actually really into this guy. Um, and so they start this whole secret celebrity romance, but with that added twist of, you know, this person is the reason you are not also a celebrity. And of course, once they fall in love, maybe this is his chance back into the band and to be, you know, a rock star and get the fame and fortune he was always, you know, felt like he always deserved. And of course, we all know how well it goes when you decide your romantic partner is your, you know, route to success. So <laughs> everything gets very messy, but it's very much a rom-com. It's fun, funny. It's like a love letter to uh, both Seattle, uh, where I'm from, and also, you know, I was a teenage musician as well. So it's very much about both that and uh, it's a queer book. So it's my own sort of coming out story as well. well that sounds like a delight. 
Thanks. And we yeah. can and we can just we can just imagine a little thread of magic if we have to, you know. Yeah, Let's tie exactly. It all together. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> so what it, I mean, I did I did imagine a sort of like oh god you devil sort of plot where it's, you know there's some sort of magical contract <laughs> that right that I was gonna say like say, yeah. so, right yeah. the sort of like Ursula Little Mermaid like now I've got your voice. <laughs> I did uh, the next book, which comes out next year, uh, or my next queer young adult fantasy is still contemporary, but I did put a ghost in that one because I was like, I got to get back to the fantasy somehow. Swing back around somehow. I guess when you write the fanfic of your own book, you can throw in some magic somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's, that's where you get to have the fake contract or the, yeah, yeah. the spells. I love it. And there should be more romances with ghosts. I'm, I'm right. more, you know, I, I think that's that's far more interesting than vampires in terms of like, you know, we have this, you know, uncrossable divide, but yet, but yet we have a connection. We, you know, it's funny because you could get a very like sort of Regency romance. It's like, well, of course we can't, you know, do anything improper. Like you literally have no body. <laughs> you, are, you are incorporeal. Yes. Therefore. Yeah. yeah. I, I what is the movie? It's with, uh, oh, it's with Daryl Hannah. It's another movie from the 80s where she's this hot ghost and <laughs> who's yeah, like did, haunting. We did not make it five minutes into the episode, Marshall. <laughs> not five minutes. It's not Marshall two movies in. An obscure yeah, 80s movie in. for us. Where she's a hot ghost who's like falls in love with Steve Gutenberg because like they're trying to make this haunted, this haunted castle into a hotel. But mm. like there's a rule. It's like you cannot have sex with the ghost or bad things happen. And they're like, okay, fine, we won't have sex. But we'll just like fool around. Like, oh, we went too far, and the bad things happen. Wow, the the <laughs> '80s were such a weird time for media. Like I sometimes look like, especially at like '80s children's cartoons, and I'm like. How much fun would that have been? And also, what was everybody on, right? When you start looking at Thundercats and all that stuff and go, that? Everything by Don Bluth. It's like, they let us watch that. Right, exactly. <laughs> no questions asked. Like, But they were passing some traumatized. good pills around in, in those writers' rooms. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, what if the moon cracks in two and then we just, like turned the world into into full post-apocalyptic Conan. Well, the thing is, I actually really love that. Like, starting to talk about world building, like, that's how I like to play with world building. I like to have it be that sort of improv stream of consciousness, you know, get in a room with people and be like, okay, so what if, you know, and just, just spray out whatever crazy stuff you can imagine and then pinging off that to see where it leads you. So that is a good question for you, James. Like, what what do you love about world building? Like, what's 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 something that's fun for you that you geek about? What do you like? I think it's that. I think it is that moment of realization. Like, you're throwing out random things. I, I think of it as a game that I'm playing with myself a lot of the time um, to see if I can come up with something that makes me, or if I'm working in a team, you know, other people so excited to know more. Um, you know, it's kind of like, I think of it a lot as like writing music. Um, cause as I said, you know, I've been a band guy forever and there's that moment when you're just sitting around sort of putting notes together randomly and you stumble across a riff or you stumble across a chord progression and it starts to suggest more and more things to you. And a song just kind of develops. I feel like world building is the same way where you can just throw out random things and then something is going to make you go, huh? how would that work? And then the process of like going down that rabbit hole of seeing, 
okay, how, how would that thing work? You know, what if I combine this with this seemingly random element from over here? And that takes us off in a third direction. Like one of the things I, whenever I teach classes on world building, I always talk about uh, intersection being one of my like sort of primary principles, which is you can just take two tropes, smash them into each other, and they'll sort of like billiard balls, they'll deflect you off in a new direction that's neither of those things, right? Like when you think about it, something like uh, Game of Thrones, for instance, you know, you've got dragons, you've got zombies, and you've got a planet with like a really long orbit. So the seasons are all uh, super long. And you just smash those things all together and you end up with this thing where people aren't really thinking about the tropes involved, right? Because most of the story is something totally unrelated, right? You know, it's frankly 17th century politics or whatever. It's the Wars of the Roses is what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but like those tropes still helped to inform it and get you to where you were trying to be, right? So I think uh, that can be really useful. I like that. I like like the the randomness combined with geometry of the billiard balls like it's <laughs> well it's because you're there's, there's, there's always there's an equation of it buried somewhere but you don't have to know what it is to play with it right you're always i think it's that you know you never want to go in and just do the trope right um but i think when you can take two and put to get put them together like uh and i'm sorry i i love doing the stream of consciousness thing so it's like okay well you've got zombies and mechs like well you like both of those and then you say how can i fit these together and you start to say well obviously mechs would be really useful in fighting zombies you know they protect you from getting bitten and then you'd say okay well why haven't the mechs eradicated all the zombies oh well maybe there aren't that many of them left and maybe the technology's been lost and they're breaking down and you know there's only a small cast of like warrior mechanics who still know how to repair the mechs and so they you know every village has its one mech that protects it from the zombies and you and as you sort of go down that avenue suddenly you end up at this place where you're like okay so now we've got like weird post-apocalyptic medieval hill villages with like mechanic priests or whatever. And somehow I got there from zombies plus mechs, you know? And so I think it's it's about going so far that you maybe even forget about the tropes you started uh, with and just finding somewhere new. I love it. So this is kind of segueing us into what we're talking about today, which is like world building in a hurry, in a gif. Yeah. If you don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, which led me to my first question, which was like, how much time do y'all usually spend on world building? Um, which might be kind of a trick question because depending on like how you world build, it might not be a discrete thing. But like, how how long do your ideas usually germinate before they play out there? Do one of you go, want to go first? I only had a flippant answer, so. <laughs> <laughs> which Flip is away. sometimes that depends on whether or not the plot is working. And if the plot's not working... I'll just keep world building until it does. <laughs> right. Fair. There Fair choice. I mean, I you know, started the process of the world building for Meridane in 93 and didn't figure out any plots until 2007. So, I mean, I think that is a big thing of like, what is, you know, do you world build to find the story or do you have a story and then world build to fit the story you have in mind? And depending on which side of that you come at it, dictates how much world building you feel you have to do or how much you feel like you should just get through in order to properly start 
And I think it can vary by project, too. You know, some things might start with more of a core story that you have to build around. And some things might start from just the the what if generation of ideas. And then you have to figure out, okay, is there actually a story I can tell in here? Or am I just having fun, you know, in a sandbox? Which, you know, is often it's a perfectly valid activity in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'll give sort of what sounds like a flippant answer, but actually isn't, which is, Uh, as little world building as possible. And for me, that came from, you know, working for a game company, working on tight deadlines as a freelancer as well. Um, You sort of, you need to just get the job done. And so you need only like, (laughs) only the world building you're getting paid for because the rest of it, (laughs) you are not getting paid for. And so, and also, especially when you're working, especially when you're working in a team. There's contract world building and hobbyist world building. And you're like, contract world building, got a deadline, do it. Yeah. It's like, it's whatever's done by Wednesday. That's the world. (laughs) It's true. And also, you know, when you're working in a team of a bunch of designers or authors, Um, It's actually really important to not have any extra world building that didn't make it onto the page, because if you do, then, you know, you end up with what we call headcanon, where you think that, you know, you imagined how this should be, but you didn't actually put it in the book or tell anybody. And so then the next person, the next writer to work on the project comes in and does something different and you get all mad because it contradicts the thing that you know in your head, but didn't tell anybody. And so early on, I realized like, oh, the the way to get around this is just don't do any extra work that wasn't what was in the assignment. And I think that's can be really important for all sorts of writers, even if you're doing it for yourself, because it keeps you focused on what the world building you actually need for the story, for the game. And, uh, you know, once you've got that, get to work, you know, tell the story. It just made me think of how in the Quantum Leap writer's room, apparently every single writer in that room had a completely different idea of how things worked in terms of oh, wow. know, the time travel. Like there was just there was just no agreement. But just, as long as it worked out in the story you were telling, but like half of them were like, no, he's just, you know, it's just his mind that's traveling and jumping into bodies. And others were like, no, it's really his body. And therefore I'm writing this story where he leaps into an amputee, but can still walk. Whoa. <laughs> and, and, but at the same time, their, their sort of philosophy was don't think too hard about it. Just, just write a good story. And I, right. I think, you know, it's the same thing, especially with a team that, you know, you just have to, you have to go with what works. And Quantum Leap is, it, it's, it's beloved. So clearly like there's something to this, right? <laughs> that, like, yeah. I mean, right. there, and there is an element too. I feel like of, you know, it is, it is okay to leave questions unanswered. There are some questions you don't want to leave unanswered because you're just tie yourself in a knot later, but like, you don't necessarily have to work out like complexities that don't surface in the plot unless it it does something for you. And I'd say it's actually better than okay. I think that oftentimes the unanswered questions are what people keep people coming back to your game or your story. You know, it's when I'm designing a world, you know, I'm always trying to, if I, if I'm writing a gazetteer of a bunch of different adventure locations, I'm trying to make sure that every paragraph I've got some hook, whether it's, an explicit sort of adventure hook or just an allusion to something that's interesting that's not explained. Because in gaming, like your role as a game writer, uh, especially in a tabletop game where people are telling their own stories with your world, is just to inspire. It's to get the, you know, the dungeon master lying awake at night going, 
God, what is in that forbidden city? Like, you know, they, they described the gates, but we have no idea what's beyond that. You know, I think this is why people love concept art and games so much, because you even if you can't enter that area, you know, the forbidden forest, the fact that you can't means that you always wonder what's in the forbidden forest. And so I think uh, while you don't want to always play that card and just have everything be a mystery box, like mysteries can be really powerful engines. And so like with both Pathfinder and Starfinder, when we were making those games, we had some questions that we set up at the beginning where we said like, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to give the answer to this. You know, like for instance, in Pathfinder, the God of humanity, the patron God of humanity disappeared, presumed dead, like, and People have been asking for 15 years what happened to him, and we haven't said because it's more interesting to have the question than to have the answer. Same way in Starfinder, like, the human planet has disappeared. You know, where where is it gone? Maybe someday we'll answer it. But as soon as we do, it's going to lose a lot of that excitement. So you got to be always careful if you're going to answer something. I feel like ask a few more questions that are just as big. I think that sort of raises a question for me too that I had for you of when, you know, you're world building in different genres, different, different spaces. And what does that like difference look like? What are there differences between world building for a game versus for a novel versus for something collaborative versus for something on your own? Like what differences do you notice? I mean, I think um, collaborative, you know, like I just had said, uh, one of the things is to remember that you have to really be careful about what you're writing down and make sure that everybody understands uh, where everybody's at and what everybody's working on so you don't end up working at cross purposes. But I think that a lot of the base uh, like tips and tricks for just world building are kind of the same. And it's that same idea of whether you're writing for a bunch of role-playing game characters or writing for the characters in your novel, you kind of just want the world building that they're actually gonna interact with and that'll be important to them. You know, if you know your story is set entirely in one city, you don't really need to know what the continent on the other side of the world looks like. And you know, that could be useful if you wanna weave it into the story, but if you're not, why are you bothering? Same with the like, you know, so often you'll see people that they've got 10,000 years of their world's history but none of the characters in the story is a scholar. So there's no access to that except info dumps from the uh, from the game master or the author. So I think just really focusing in on what's necessary. But at the same time, um, like I said, with role-playing games, often what people are paying you for is the world, the setting, the inspiration that they can take and then do something else with. So in those cases, it's really just about wetting their appetite and making sure that everything you give them is something that could potentially be really exciting. You know, like there's there's nothing I hate more than reading a role-playing game source book and seeing an, you know, an entry on an inn and it's just a basic inn. You know, it's just the exactly what you would imagine. Because if it's exactly what I would imagine, why did I pay someone else to imagine it for me? <laughs> right? So like you need to, if you're going to be writing for role-playing games, you got to do the work for the game master. And so when you write that in, there better be a, you know, mysterious portrait that hangs over the mantle that uh, speaks a code on the full moon, you know, or there better be, you know, the innkeeper should be secretly the, uh, the heir to the empire who at any minute, uh, her mother's retainers could come busting in to drag her back to the palace. You know, you need to give something 
that could start a game. Otherwise, there like there's no fun there. And I've I actually one a fun project I got to do a while back was sort of bringing that idea to Baldur's Gate, which is this setting for Dungeons and Dragons that's been around for a long time. And uh, when they released uh, Descent to Avernus, um, an adventure they did a couple years ago, they brought me into among other things like sort of just spice up some of the locations because they had a lot of information, but they didn't have a lot of adventure built into it. They're like, we have a lot of tavern menus. We don't have a lot of <laughs> like mysterious, you know, adventures and monsters and secrets. Right. And so that was kind of my job to sort of like judge it up a little bit. But so that's what I always try to keep in mind when designing for games. It's just like, really, it's got to be exciting. I think it's interesting too the, the kind of participation that you are anticipating from your audience in novels versus games that obviously someone is is getting a game to play it and to be an active participant to some degree and reading is creative and active but i think in a different way um in terms of what i think a readership expects to be told versus expects to fill in the blanks themselves versus expects to get to participate and create um, so I think that's kind of interesting, like where do you create the mysteries and where do you leave the gaps and what does the audience get to do with that? In a novel, right. they don't, you know, they don't get to fill in the page themselves. They, they, they can, you know, if they want to, but most of our readership are, are probably not going to be writing fanfic of our work. So some, some might. That's, that's all of our dreams. Um, but it's, even, <laughs> even in novels, it's those little illusions, the little, uh, the little references to things that never come onto the page, I think those are the things that make your world feel bigger and make people really eager for that next trilogy that you might write, you know, because they know all about this city, but they don't know about that lost continent. And they want to because they've been kind of having it in the back of their mind. Right. And I think that that, you know, engaging what kind of creative process in each space readers get get to do. And it's, it's a different kind of agency that is then bestowed upon either like the reader or the player. Um, it's something I think about my day job is essentially writing the stories for mythology themed LARPing camps for children. Nice. Um, yeah, it's super fun. Um, and one of the things I have to think about a lot is our product is not finished until the campers are actually enacting the story and then telling the story of what they've done. And I am never going to be able to anticipate the things they're going to come up with. And I don't want to try. Yeah. Because if I tell them there's a forbidden gate and I don't explain, you know, what it is or why it is or whatever, they're going to come up with a reason why it's forbidden. They might create a cult around it. <laughs> That's the kind of world building that the kids do by themselves with very little provocation. And I have to lean into that. I want to give them the hooks to just go wild, create their own. One group this year created a thieves guild and then they had to have a detectives guild because there was a thieves guild. That was not any part of our world building when we started, but we left the door open for them and we gave them the agency to build upon the story seeds that we had. And, and that's what happened. And See, I just and love it so much. That's the joy of role playing, whether it's yeah. LARPs or tabletop or whatever. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a convention and had somebody come up to me and, you know, thank me for building whatever location. They say, oh, we've been, spent two years playing in, you know, the lost city of blah, blah, blah. Um, and they told me all about it. And I'm thinking, I wrote three sentences on that and I wrote it at like 2 a.m. I don't even remember what they are, but like you're telling me all about all these things you've created and thinking that 
I'm a genius because of the things you created. <laughs> you did, exactly. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. that's the joy of role-playing games. Yeah, it's the unpredictability. And what's interesting in a novel is that, like, the, the reader has a certain amount of agency, and the reader's going to pick up, like you said, on those things that are just sort of teasers. And, and that's what I love in a book. I love to, like, look at a map and be like, we might never go to that location on a map, but I want to think about what life is like there. Yeah. Or we may only hear you know, these things in passing, but I, I want to go on that. But the way in which a reader does that is very, very different than the the interactive, interpersonal way that they do it in the game. And I think authors, unless you do have like a really robust fan fiction community, it's harder for us to know if people are doing those things with all the little the little trinkets we leave in our books. We always hope they are, but, but, but we don't really get to know. Here's the secret I feel like for fiction authors, though, is that you can use those same world building you know things of like leaving all the hooks and whatnot for yourself you are your own game master so like i oftentimes will write stuff you know even if i'm just doing world building for myself i'll write it the same way with all the little hooks and illusions and stuff because sometimes that'll get me excited about a thing and i'll feel like well i want to know the answer to that and so like it's the same approach it's just about getting yourself excited the same way you would get a player or a game master excited which is kind of the argument for like developing that continent on the other side of the world or developing that 10,000 sure. years worth of history <laughs> just because you know you know it's not actually helping you write the story other than it's it's make it's thrilling to you to like you know, I love doing that sort of thing. I don't recommend it to other people in terms of like, that's what you have to do if you're going to build the world. But if that brings you joy and gives you that sort of depth of understanding that you crave in order to keep writing the story, I think that's great. And I think it's the same sort of thing. Like in a game, you know, you're, the characters can go off the narrative and be like, we're just going to go down this alley and see what happens. And you can't do that in a book, but you want to craft the book in such a way that you can believe that somebody could just go down the alley and there's there's a whole different story down there. Well, and I think I think that, you know, it's a totally valid way to reach your story. Like it's one thing if you know exactly the story you want to tell, then, yeah, do the world building that you need for that story. If you don't know what story you're telling yet, sometimes you can develop a great world and then say, okay, I'm going to pick my five favorite locations or like aspects of this world and figure out how to mash all these elements together. Like what that was how I wrote my first two novels was pretty much like sitting down with the Pathfinder, you know, setting books and saying, okay, what elements do I absolutely want to play with? And how can I possibly come up with characters and a plot that will justify all this? And, you know, of course, you don't want it to feel like just a travelogue uh, by the end, but it's a great place to start. I think it's funny too that often when writing, you know, world building and drafting writing don't necessarily like exist in separate spheres. Like I feel like usually my draft and my world building are like skipping off together down the road. Like <laughs> I've got a general idea of the world. I've put things together, but there's still plenty open. And then all of a sudden like plot screeches to a halt. And it's like, well, how does this work? And looks at world building and world building's like, I don't know. And plus, like, <laughs> it was your job to figure this out. And so then they have to like work it out together exactly how this is going to. But in the process of getting there, I've answered questions for myself. I've opened up new doors. I've got a whole bunch of different like pieces I can start to puzzle together to play with it. Right. I, 
I just love the metaphor of like plot and world building being two clueless college students on a road trip together. <laughs> I thought you had the map. No, you had yeah, exactly. the map. Dude, dude where's my storyline? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to launch into some strategies like to to world build quickly if if you want to or if you need to. And I think that we've hit some of the reasons you might like want to, like because you want to or need to because deadlines or because... You have other people who are like waiting on you. Um, and honestly, as much as, as it shocks some of us, not everyone loves in-depth world building that much and might just want to like get there. Um, what? So, Sounds fake. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. So what, I guess, principles do you feel like you have to keep in mind if you are going to build quickly. And I guess I'm thinking both practical, pragmatic principles and if there are any like ethical principles to kind of like play with. And maybe we can hit the pragmatic first. Like pragmatically, how do you have to approach this if you want to be quick? Um, well, some of the things we uh, we started with uh, already um, are, you know, focusing on the elements the characters will actually interact with, we talked about. Um, and recognizing that making a world via patchwork is okay. Like it's okay to develop part of it today and the rest of it next month. I actually think that's actually good because you, you know, if you try to do everything at once, you'll be sort of like Bilbo where you're too much, but or too little butter spread over too much toast. You know, you'll, you'll find that you lose steam. Whereas if you develop little pinpoint sections of the world at a time, the different media and experiences you've taken in over the time between when you created point A and point E will naturally inform uh, the next things you do and give them a different flavor. So it won't feel like everything was built at the same time by the same person. I also think focus on the exciting parts. I think sometimes we get really bogged down in sort of realism and wanting to create, you know, w wanting to really know every little detail because we feel like more data equals more real. And I think it just bogs everybody down. The reader only cares about the parts that are cool and memorable, and you can gloss over the rest of it. So I think really just get in there and like do the things that'll end up on the movie poster, do the things that'll end up on the book's cover, you know, like the, you know, the cool fight scene above the foundry that, you know, is hanging in the middle of the sky, you know, that, okay, great. Like focus on that. I don't need to know the location of every uh, grocery store, you know? So um, anyway, but uh, what all are you, your tips? Thieving from history, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, find a historical analog. And then for me, it's often a game of playing. Like, what if, like, what if this situation, but something else happened? What if, 10th century Mercia, but Ethelfled didn't die when she died and something else happened. Like thinking about what could put a twist on something I already know can definitely be a, a cheat code and a shortcut to getting world building that is not just a carbon copy of our real world, but it will feel familiar. It will have touchstones and it will be easier for me to, to move on and keep developing something. One of the things pragmatically that I was thinking about is the question of research, which is like, if, if you're going to have to do research with a world build, like maybe putting a pin in it <laughs> can help you to move past things. Cause I think that sometimes it can be a pitfall where it's like, Oh, I need to know this thing. And so you start looking things up and you think you have to answer all these questions. But in reality, like maybe you don't, um, that there are some questions you can probably 
get away without doing a deep dive of research on. So like being willing to kind of put a pin in, in the research and come back to if it's truly necessary and like, maybe it's not. And like maybe deciding to go research light if you have to be quick, like maybe, maybe this is not the, the project that you're going to research, like exactly how this particular kind of sailing vessel works. Just don't, don't, don't put boats, don't put boats in your books. Cause somebody's going to like, no, it's not right. And whatever, you know? So like, there are those things. Right. It's like, I know I don't know enough about this to do it justice. So that's or not for me boats. right now. But the only people your point of viewing through knows nothing about boats other than <laughs> I am on a boat. I'm on a boat. <laughs> right. <laughs> Things are happening. I, that's perfectly valid. <laughs> and that's perfectly valid. I mean. I'm I on mean, a boat and I don't want to be here. Yes. That's yeah. the extent of my knowledge. That's all I need. Nobody Same writes thing. a story where like the passenger of a plane is like doing all like the math of like what's going on with the flaps and the altimeter and and because it's not their job and they don't need to know how the plane works right i don't want to know i'm I'm happier not knowing how to get on a plane and how sitting on one works and if you don't know these things perhaps the like william goldman abridging the princess bride like tactic of between one thing and another two years passed like, <laughs> between one thing and another, we made it to the next. They town. made it on the plate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's really what you want to do anyway, because no one wanted to read that. Right. Nobody really wanted to go there. I guess one question I had too about like ethics is: Are there things that you maybe shouldn't short shrift? Um, and one thing I was thinking of is anything that's like a culture outside my own. I feel like I, if I'm going to do anything with that, it's, I have to take the time to like really explore it and research it and make sure it's even something that I I feel that I can do any justice to if I am the right person to even engage with it. Um, are there any things like that that you feel like? No, I, I agree with you. And I feel like actually that's one of the reasons why I often say like, unless you really need, unless you're writing a historical or something, do you actually need to do just a fantasy version that's faithful to sort of like one earth culture? Or can you take some of the things that you like from that culture and mash it up with some of the things you like from a different culture and create something that is new, that is yours, that, you know, you can change enough that nobody's going to look at it and get, get offended because you did it wrong. Um, You can just sort of have, I mean, and granted people will like it's the internet, like, you know, you can, you can screw up anything. Um, But I do think it's often a lot easier rather than saying, I'm going to set this in fantasy Japan saying like, well, what is it that I really like about Japan? Well, really, I just want Ronin. You know, I'm very excited about samurai. It's like, okay, we'll take that idea and mash it up with like, uh, you know, uh, Athenian Greece or something, you know, and say like, uh, and then mash that up with, you know, I was thinking the other day of like, okay, well, I'll take that. I'll take Athenian Greece and I'll take, um, the the mother's gang from mad max fury road and like put that all together and so it's like okay so now you've got this like democracy where all of the uh the samurai characters are these old women you know badass warriors who go around enforcing democracy by like killing uh (laughs) tyrants and demigods (laughs) yeah and so like okay well that's that is now significantly different than any of like Mm. my touchstones like you just want to make sure you change things enough that it doesn't feel like you're you're just scrubbing the serial numbers off of one culture yeah it seems like kind of a question of like what do you want to write about this cultural thing okay no but really what about that do you want to write about 
Oh, it's, yes. well, it's this thematic thing, actually, that I find really cool. Well, that's 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 not even that thing. Like, you can write about that without writing about that thing. You can write exactly. about, you know, the roving warrior without it being samurai. That, in fact, exists in many spaces. Go be free. Create. Yeah. The people who are going to get mad about certain things because you they pulled that one thread that you put in there and be like, well... They put this one thread, but then everything else was different, so they did it wrong. Like that person's <laughs> gonna be mad anyway. So right, right, you can't exactly. Write for that person, <laughs> you can't write for that person. You can't write for that person. Yeah, James. One thing that you mentioned, um, I think, kind of in the the notes before um, we 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 got the show was um, the element of improv. Do you want to talk about that a little yes. bit? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, I I view all world building as sort of an improv game, and like I said, that comes in part from being in a writer's room, but partially that's just how I like to work. I think that uh, going really fast and stream of conscious allows me to get out of my own way and just surprise myself with interesting things. So I think think it's a useful way to go. And some of the strategies I use for it are things like we already talked about sort of that intersections idea of slamming two tropes into each other and seeing how I can fit them together. Um, I also think, uh, it can be really useful to ask yourself why a thing is the way it is. Um, because, you know, you say, okay, well, they've got, uh, whatever it is, they've got, um, temples that are guarded by robots. Um, and so then you start asking, okay, well, why do they have temples that are guided by, guarded by robots? What, uh, what environmental and societal pressures led to this visual that I have, Um, And then in sort of digging down on that, you know, layer by layer, I'll end up finding a lot of cool elements about the society that I didn't know when all I knew was there's a big robot in front of the temple, right? And suddenly my story will be about that other thing where it's like, well, it's about the cultural revolution they had 30 years before because blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that doesn't have anything to do with the robots, except that that's how I got there. Um, Similarly, uh, I think it can also be useful when you've created an element to sort of ask, uh, what would this society look like in the future? And what did it look like in the past? Like, what are the trajectories at play? Where are things going? And sometimes you'll find like that you actually started in the wrong place and that it's much more interesting. You know, if I've got a flying city, then, you know, well, what was it like before the city started flying? What was it like, you know, the day that it first launched? Uh, What is it like after it crashes in some great war and becomes a ruined city? You know, the story might be better in any one of those sections. And similarly, like, you know, playing that game, what are the pressures that made that city have to fly? Like, why would you choose to expend all of that magic to make a city fly? Is it a political thing so that they can be neutral? Is it to avoid a plague or monsters that were ravaging along the ground? Is it... uh, is it a tax haven? Like, you know, what is <laughs> like, what are the reasons that you would go through all this expense? And then, of course, well, how does the city fly? It's, it's always it, about taxes. It's always about taxes. Usually does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it, taxes. Right. Is the city flying? Because, go, is it preying on the cultures beneath it? You know, is it, you know, gobbling up the souls of children to power it? Or is it powered by, you know, the piety of the residents? You know, it, so you just sort of, you spitball like this. And I think uh, I think people don't realize how creative they are until they open their mouths. You know, I think you you need to just 
go. And some of the ideas won't be good, but you only need one. Oh, and one other thing, speaking of spitballs, one other uh, improv strategy that I love is I love to, if I need to like create a country, um, for instance, you know, if somebody says, okay, here's, um, here's uh, in Pathfinder, you know, Belkson, our orc nation, or Kion and our elven nation, uh, go through and create me 50, like 50 map tags. You know, we've got the map of this region and we have no idea what's here. Uh, I loved those assignments because I would oftentimes either I would put a bunch of dots on the map, um, some of them in very sensible areas where I'm like, okay, the, these two rivers come together here. Probably there's a trade city here, you know, that kind of thing. But sometimes in random places and I would go, okay, well, this is way away from everything. What's here and why? And then, you know, justifying what all those things are or spitballing a big list of random names where it's just a name that sounds cool. I have no idea what it means. Um, and we can get into my, you know, I have a lot of tips for how to come up with random names. Uh, but I love taking a random name and then trying to figure out, okay, what is, what does that name mean? Right? Like, uh, you know, if I'll, I'll have written down somewhere like, okay, this is Kobashan the Unmoored. Well, is that like, is that our flying city from before? Is that uh, a floating uh, casino raft? Is that a tower that's become unstuck in time and flickers back and forth between different era is like, what does that mean? Maybe it's a um, person experiencing extreme ennui. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it could be a person. Yeah. You know, it was like, it, and right. And like, the thing I love about fantasy, especially is like, you can always get weirder, right? So maybe it's a person experiencing ennui. Maybe that person experiencing ennui is 700 feet tall. They're like a giant troll Buddha figure and everybody's built their city like up its sides and like delved in, like dug their cellars into its flesh. And maybe that flesh has magical properties. And so they're selling healing relics. And maybe the whole economy is based on healing relics. And, you know, it's that sort of <laughs> process that is everything that that is my one skill. Like that is the thing that working in the game industry has given me. I, I'm just, I was just gonna say I, I have just been internally astounded by how your brain works and the these things <laughs> that just have been just rattling off like you know, like like they're nothing and they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, but like that's that's the thing. Like I think when people start playing these improv games, everybody can do it. People just don't think they can. It's like I've. You know, again, going back to the band analogy, I've played with so many classically trained musicians over the years who think they don't know how to jam. And I'm like, you are 10 times better at your instrument than I will ever be. You already know the scales and the chords. All that's standing between you and being a great, you know, improviser is realizing that you already know how to do this. I think something else really critical about that improv attitude, too, is not wetting yourself to your first idea. Yeah. You know, like the first thing you think of doesn't have to be the answer. And even like even an idea that you like that you've thought about for a while, if it's later on not working, you're allowed to change it. Like yeah. that's a thing I ran into in, in some recent world building I was doing. I was like, man, this is just getting in my way. And it's like, wait, literally no one else on the planet knows about this yet. <laughs> I'm allowed to change it. <laughs> right, right. I have that power. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're on book three. You know, right, yeah, if, if it's you're like, this deep thing in the is... series, that's a problem. But yeah, but when you're just when you're in that generative state, it's yeah. like, wait, that might have been a good idea at the time, but it's now not fitting with the other good ideas I've had. So I can let that one 
go. It's it's allowed. Yeah. You know, Although, I, I will also it say it's not it's not it's, fun anymore. You it's just written let it down. Be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will also say I love the joy of retcon, like of figuring out when you realize you've made a mistake and you have to figure out how to justify this. Like I a classic example is I remember when we were building the world out for Pathfinder, we had to do it really fast um, in a lot of ways. And so we ended up at some point after we'd published the book, we realized we had two orc cities like a hundred miles apart. One was named uh, Urgir and one was named Urglin. And we were like, those are almost the same thing. What are we going to do? Uh, and I thought about it and I was like, you know, this is just the Orcish language. Like that just means one means first home and the other means second home. Like, so now we've, and you know, we put that in the book and suddenly everybody's going like, oh my God, they created a whole Orcish yes. language. No, we're just trying to like knowledge our idiots. Or like we named two capital cities, two capital cities of uh, two different nations. Um, they were both named Eladir, Eladir and Eladir. Um, there was like one letter difference. And we looked like idiots, but then you think about it and you go, wait a second, New York is named after York. This is clearly just a bunch of colonists came from here to here and they gave it the same name as where they came from. Versimilitude, yeah. right? Like clearly <laughs> we're just very realistic in our world building. So I think we wanted to have some time to play with like some quick tips for like different kinds of world builds. And I think that we kind of had a yeah. list of like, can you kind of riff on these? So... I, I enjoy this one being first. Creatures. Are we talking magical creatures or are we talking like normal ordinary salamanders? Because my love always lies with the ordinary salamander because it is not so ordinary. But <laughs> Well, I am I'm very intrigued. But like I think the same process works for both magical and non-magical creatures. So for me, I like to approach all creatures um, through sort of an evolutionary theory perspective. And you can go two ways. You can either start with the environment you know say look at your natural environment and then say okay what sort of creatures might this environmental uh like these environmental pressures give rise to what adaptations would evolve but you can also go the other direction and say i've designed this weird weirdo monster that i you know thought up dreamed up in my brain or like somebody fantasy artist drew this and i need to explain why it is the way it is and then finding a way where those crazy traits actually make a lot of sense once you figure out the environment and it can be fantastic right so like for instance if you've got uh, a desert planet you might say like okay well an adaptation that you might have would be like okay well camels store water like and that's a fine adaptation but also you can go weird you know you can say okay so there's not much water on this world and as a result like there's these like armadillo creatures that uh their blood is copper based and it's so thick because they don't have that much water that the act of their blood circulating creates magnetic fields and so they have magnetic powers and like you see these armadillos just like doing magnetic pushes where they fling each other you know off cliffs because they've got they have the ability to manipulate magnetic fields you know, like that was in that's very weird, but that was inspired by the fact that it's a desert and like that does sort of make sense as an adaptation. Right. So I love playing like that. I love that. I also like thinking about um, what do I want to pet? 
So <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like, what is the cute critter? But, yeah, like, like hmm, I'm gonna have like a a totally new second world. They they need pets, and what would I want as a pet? Well, let's start from there. That's great. Great Dane sized red panda, definitely. <laughs> I also think I will say um, so for creatures, I always go for the environmental uh, sort of approach for monsters, specifically things that I want to be scary. I think it's often really useful to think about the fundamental human fears that they represent, because I think a lot of classical monsters, uh, you can sort of find a baseline fear where like, okay, zombies represent fear of loss of self, of having to kill a loved one, of infection. You know, uh, lycanthropes represent loss of uh, of control, right? Like, you know, uh, Frankenstein is like your child turning against you. Like the Slender Man is the fear of being watched. Like, you know, all of these monsters usually boil down to some fear we all share. And so you can start from the fear that you want that's like resonant for your story and then build a monster that somehow taps into that and it's going to be a lot scarier than just well it's got big claws claws are scary (laughs) just imagining a giant like hand with just claws and like that's the monster (laughs) it's like a normal like i don't know capuchin monkey but it has a giant paw of claws and we're supposed to be afraid of this and everyone's kind of stares at it like I don't know. That's, it's, that's the it's thing, right? Cute. Like, eh. <laughs> then it just becomes a creature. Right, it's is it really creature. a monster if it isn't scary? <laughs> you know, um, that's a good question. The line between creature and monster. Yeah, probably a lot of it depends too on the mythology that you build around the creature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get it go. Oh, I guess taking a turn from from creatures. What about coming up with like environments and ecosystems? Do you tend to pilfer wholesale from watching BBC Earth or come up with something more creative? I think, um, so one thing when you're doing designing environments, uh, I think you generally want to avoid the um, like uh, Star Wars approach where it's like, this is the <laughs> desert world. This is the forest <laughs> the world. Planet. This is the, you know. It's the whole yeah, thing. One biozone. <laughs> yeah, and I think you need to remember even, remember that environments are fractal. Like, even if you have a forested, like the Elven Nation is all forest, when you zoom in, there's going to be variation in that forest, and that variation is going to create opportunities uh, for you to riff on. For instance, like, uh, the elves that live in the swampy part of the forest are going to have very different houses than the elves who live on the side of the cliff in the forest, right? You know, uh, one is going to have stilt houses in the middle of the river and the other ones are going to have, you know, cliff dwellings that they fly to on their giant eagle companions or whatever. Um, So you want to zoom in until you can find that level of variation. Now I just want Cajun swamp elves. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Why not? I think maps, people often get very scared of maps, but it's easier than you think to make ones that at least sort of hold together. Um, And so some things to think about there are uh, think about tectonic plates. Think about uh, how mountain ranges often form where uh, two plates smash together. And when you can kind of think about that, you realize like, oh, this is why mountains run in ranges and aren't just like scattered like sprinkles across a cupcake, you know? Um, this is why they run in lines. This is why like, oh, hey, look, you often find island chains where like the mountains, the mountain range reaches the water, you know, 
Also remember that rivers run generally down and together. And also, and here's a big one, down, like down does not have to mean north to south. I think we often like we hold the map up and we're like, well, water runs down, like from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. It's like, no, 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 it can flow north as well. Like, that's okay. Um, but then, you know, so when I'm drawing a map, I start with those, uh, you know, the mountain ranges. And then I, you know, draw in um, one of my favorite things is if you hold your pencil really tight, your hand will start to shake and that'll make drawing coastlines that look realistic a lot easier because it'll give you sort of that shaky look. Um, I learned that from another Paizo uh, employee, uh, Adam Daigle. But um, but then, okay, you've got your mount mountains, you've got your coastline, you've got your rivers. Well, now you know forests probably kind of go near water. So you start to put those near the rivers and the lakes. Deserts often form in rain shadows. So you've got your mountains. So you kind of know where those go. And suddenly your world is sort of populated itself uh, or your map is populated itself in a kind of deterministic way. And then you say, okay, well, cities have reasons why they are where they are. So there's probably either a port or a river or a caravan, you know, a crossing of two roads or and if it's out in the middle of nowhere, there's probably a really great resource there. You know, like you can put it a city in the middle of the desert, uh, but probably it should be mining the magical, you know, the magical fairy dust or whatever. Um, and then think that borders usually follow geography unless there's a reason like, uh, you know, maybe the border is a straight line. But if so, it's probably because either uh, nobody cares about that land because it's a giant wasteland um, or it's because the border was drawn not by the people who live there. And so that is a really useful thing to think about, too. Um, or, like, what impact does that have on the society? Or coming to that decision was rather acrimonious, and all we could do was come up with a parallel to draw a line on. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's the best Which we could do. then leaves you things like that little bit of town that's America that has to go into Canada to go anywhere. Because, oh, yeah. No, I mean, because it's right. I live right near it. Yeah. <laughs> so what about um, belief systems and religions and and the, the grand the grand myths and gods and things like that? OK, so this is one of my favorite ones. Um, I love building and you can have all sorts of different things. Like when you're deciding what kind of faith you want in your world, you can have no gods uh you can have a religion religious system without a god like for instance the force from star wars um you can have one god you can have two gods uh you know a duality but i really like designing pantheons um because i love having a big collection especially in a game of gods to choose from and so one of the ways that i really like to make gods interesting is to decide what I want, what concepts that God represents. And like usually in, especially in gaming, you have sort of like, well, this is the God of war and this is the God of love and this is the God of blah, blah, blah. And that's great. But for each of them, figure out what you want the God to mostly be about and then pick a curveball, throw something in there that seems totally unrelated and then figure out what that does to the religion. So if you have your God of death and murder, also make him the god of accountants. You know, if you have your god of I, I don't know. battle and Doesn't warfare. Seem that different. I hate math. Right, exactly, right? Because you immediately start 
Yeah, you immediately start making those connections. Same with like the god of battle and warfare is also the god of art and beauty. Okay, well then you start thinking like, well, they probably have incredible, like incredibly elegant martial arts and maybe their armor, maybe this is the reason that justifies like all the crazy fantasy armor that you see illustrators do online. And you're like, that would never work. And like, you're like, ah. Improbable however yeah. and things. Like, it doesn't yeah. work, but the God loves it, you know? <laughs> so and like, therefore, maybe it works because you've just won the God's favor by having the most impressive pauldrons. Exactly. exactly. And before you even have the battle, you first have a runway. Yeah. Yeah, the, why the, not? The strutting of the armies before one another. <laughs> right. So like, you know, and I, I like that idea of you always find the thing where it's like, Okay, you've got your uh, weird evil evil cult of oblivion, and it's also uh, the god of eggs. And you go, okay, well, well, why? And then you say, well, like, well, reality is really just an egg that they want to like crack open and release into the the great beyond, and right, like, and the 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 great you know Cthulhu that they're trying to hatch. Is, is, you know, themselves metaphorically in an egg or literally in an egg, you know, and so you start playing all these games and then pretty soon you end up with a god that like, y that people are going to remember, right? Like, it's not just another evil cult. It's like, oh yeah, that book, they had the evil egg god, you know, and I think that that's, I think that that's really useful. Um, and so I, I enjoy playing that way uh, with gods. Um, I also think uh, it's really important to think about, especially for your evil gods, what is the appeal of the religion? Like, this is a thing that drives me nuts where I'm always like, you'll have some evil demon cult or something. And I'm like, why are these cultists showing up to the human sacrifices when it is so much easier to sit on the couch and eat Doritos? Like, they don't even, ha like, they don't even have cake at the sacrifice. Right, yeah. Yeah, like, what is, it? What is the purpose here? And so I think, I think for every god you should be able to come up with like a compelling argument. I mean, this is actually how I feel about like bad guy cultures in general in any sort of fantasy is like you as the author should be able to come up with a really compelling argument. You might not agree with it, but like what would be somebody's best pitch for this belief system? Like you should know that for each of your gods. Um, and then of course also think about relations with other religions. Um, I love that, especially when you have like, more than just a good god and an evil god. Well, if you've got two different gods that are basically good, what do they disagree about? Like, how do they interact with each other? Do they tear each other apart over that 10% they disagree on? Or are they sort of like have a like jokey rivalry? Or like, what is it? What is the deal, right? Are those gods married? It's a pantheon. Like, Go nuts. Maybe the two gods, they're actually fine with each other, but it's the people that have a problem. Which or I think can maybe, also be really fun is to take, you know, if if you as, you know, the creator of your world and in some ways playing God, like if you if you decide what the ultimate truth of your world is and then say, well, and how do different people approach it and how yes. does everyone look at it and like pick it apart and, and they interpret this one way and this other group interprets it a completely different way and you end up yeah. with totally different practices and beliefs, but it's all like coming back to spokes off the same thing. You can kind of have some fun with diversity of opinion and thought yeah like schisms within the same religion yeah or like have i mean you can do things across religion you could say like okay uh one of the interesting things is we have a good and evil god but the tradition is 
uh, you can only marry outside of your religion. So every believer from the good religion is married to a believer from the bad religion because they're both like trying to convert each other or something. Maybe it's a law. Maybe it was the only thing that stopped the feuding between them. You know, uh, that's so- your next rom com. Yeah. <laughs> right oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then of course, you know, enemies to lovers. <laughs> I no, I love it. Um, and so, and then of course you've got, uh, you can think about the sort of uh, aesthetics of it all. You can think about rituals, hierarchy, vestments, texts. You know, I think a mistake people often make when designing fantastical religions is to just default to what they know, where everything is like, well, you give this a different name, but this is basically just Catholicism or Judaism or whatever, you know, like you, you said this is the weird elk god, but they're still calling everybody father and they're still all wearing robes and like, and reading out of a book, you can make it so much more interesting than that, right? Like if it's your nature god, maybe the holy text is, you know, a, a tree that gets constantly eaten by worms that, uh, that inscribe, you know, runes with their crawling around. Or maybe uh, it's a, you know, maybe it's a psychic brain coral for the sea god that you have to dive down and like access the memories of all the ancestor priests that have been stored within this giant living coral system. Like it's fantasy. Use it. You know, don't don't show me a Bible unless there's a real good reason. Sorry, this is I realize this is also like just a sort of old man Sutter shakes his fist. You know? like, this is... No, I think most of our shows we have moments of like <laughs> Perhaps hitting up one more how to how to hit it up fast, which um, it's fantasy magic magic systems. Yeah. So there's a ton of things to think about with magic if you want, Um, you know, hard versus soft, all those things. You can go read Brandon Sanderson's laws of magic um, for like hard magic systems. And I think those are great for what they are. But I think uh, they're not the whole story. And if you want a really fast way to create a magic system. Um, the the five-minute version is you need four things. Think of something that magic can do in your story because that puts the hero on stage, that makes us curious, that gets the magic in play. Think of something magic can't do because that's what creates struggle for the protagonist and struggle is what gives us story. Think about a price or a toll that the magic incurs uh, to get that tension in there. And then think about what it feels like to do magic, just to like let you get in your character's head. But once you know what magic can do, what it can't do, uh, the price, and what it feels like, I think you're basically ready to write the story. Like you can get you can get as Byzantine and like build your system out as much as you want. But I think even just having that much is usually enough to get writing. Um and then of course, like if you want to get bigger than that. Um, I like to think about hard and soft magic. And again, if you want to write hard magic, uh, I think the Sanderson's laws are great. I don't really have any, like far be it from me to add on to <laughs> what Brandon has to say there. Um, I don't know. You're, but you're, you're think, old man Sutter. You can, I am. I, am. <laughs> <laughs> I can shake my fist at anyone, even Brandon. Um, but what I will say is that, uh, hard magic is not the only way. And soft magic systems are also very useful. And you need to think about what works best for your audience and your story. Because the uh, the two types of magic systems work better for different things. Like, people who love hard magic 
are the readers who want to treat magic as science. They're the engineers. They're the puzzle solvers. They want to think about how they would exploit the magic rules. And they want to see the characters do the same thing. And like, that's fun. Like it is interesting to see, okay, here's this limited tool set. What can the character do with it? How are they going to fight a dragon with a dishwashing charm? You know, like that is, that is fun, but soft magic also has a place. And soft magic is really useful when you want to create um, a sense of uncertainty, a sense of the numinous, right? Uh, which is why I think horror fiction or dark fantasy almost always works better with soft magic because the more you understand the magic system, the harder it is to feel like the same sense of fear, you know? And so I think that's why you see, you know, you don't need to know exactly how many spells the cultist summoning Cthulhu has, right? You don't need to know the magical principles by which they're doing that. You just need to know it's bad. The world's about to end. Um, so thinking about what you need for your story uh, and what you're the different readers like or dislike. I think that one of the things that can stand in the way of like quick and dirty world building when it comes to magic is people being afraid of blocking themselves into a corner and I think that when we think about the hard magic, that's one of the things that, that we think about, right? Like, I don't want to, yeah. I'm going to write rules, and then those are the rules, and that's what I have to do. But I think one thing that you, we can kind of play with and keep in mind is that, like, if magic is real, that means people are constantly learning more about it, understanding things differently. You can have a world in which magic, like, evolves and changes. And so you can make a decision right now for the story and discover something new later. Like, you, you don't necessarily have to have the laws of magic written for your world and be airtight up front. Um, yeah. And you don't want to do it in a cheating way that's, like, unsatisfactory later for a reader who's like, well, if you could have done that all along. But I, I think that there is an element of, again, keeping keeping the retcon yeah. open for yourself. It's okay yeah, you, to change and develop. You can go back and revise or sometimes writing yourself into a corner creates excitement because if you you know spend the time and really think about no really how are they going to beat the dragon with the dishwashing charm if you can come up with a cool way that doesn't violate your rules that's going to be really satisfying for the readers like those are not to be one of those like every problem is an opportunity people but <laughs> uh but coming up with a clever answer to a difficult problem is part of what people are reading for. Right, so some quick cultural things. Uh, obviously, building a culture is a giant thing, but a couple of things that can get you started. Um, think about what are the taboos in a given culture. Like, that can often be a really interesting way to make a culture feel different, especially if it's one that you're just your characters are just going to be passing, right? Like, um, you know, a culture that... Uh, you know, for in Starfinder, we have a uh, an alien race that always covers their mouths because they feel like anybody seeing you eat is like way too intimate. Or you could have a culture where um, the spoken word is considered very intimate and private, and so you use sign language in public, and then you reserve speaking, you know, verbally with uh, for only your closest, you know, relatives or whatever. You know, like thinking about taboos can be really interesting. And also can then inform uh, your swearing, which is often a good way as well uh, to make people seem different in passing in their voice. Um, think about what the society fears. 
a society that fears, uh, you know, invasion is going to be a very different than a society that fears, uh, you know, internal strife. Um, in general, I think the more there's a principle where the more scared a society is, uh, generally the tighter uh, it demands everybody be controlled. So if a country is always on the edge of uh, being invaded, they're probably going to be a little more fascist, a little more demanding everybody get in line rather than like fun and libertine. Um, and then, of course, think about the effects any like supernatural like magic or technology has had. Or if you're writing non-human characters, think about their physiology, right? You know, uh, even just like in designing their cities, you know, if everybody's got octopus tentacles, um, there's not going to be any door handles because they can just go and suck onto the door and pull it open, right? Uh, so little things like that, or like if everybody's got wings, there are no stairs. Um, so thinking about stuff like that can help you figure out uh, what makes a culture feel very different. Or of course, you know, if they have magical healing, well, who cares about the gold standard? I want the like limb regeneration standard. Like that's what I'm basing my economy on is like potions of healing, you know? So who has that is going to make a huge difference within the society. Um, so some things to think about with culture. Uh, and last I'll say like, I love working with names. Um, I love spitballing lists of names like we were talking about and then just figuring out what they mean. So when I'm coming up with just a list, uh, some of the ways that I come up with names are portmanteaus. So I just smash two words together. So you end up with, you know, blood crag or salt spear or whatever. Um, unusual words. Uh, you know, instead of oracle, I'll say haruspex just because it sounds cool and I haven't heard it as much. Um, made up words. Uh, just just smash sounds together and then Google them to make sure they're not a slur <laughs> in a language you don't speak. Um, but uh, I also say them out loud in multiple pronunciations. <laughs> yes, yes, that's very important. Um, and also think about your creature's physiology, right? Like when we were doing Starfinder, I definitely spent a lot of time like, you know, thinking about different aliens and sitting in my office with the door closed, you know, holding on to my lips or my tongue to see like, okay, can I actually pronounce, can I pronounce this name without a tongue? You know, like, uh, start, uh, you can start from other languages. You want to be careful not to just be like, oh, I see all of your fantasy words are actually just Russian. You know, you don't, you don't want to do that. Uh, but it can be a good way to start. Like in um, in Pathfinder, uh, the teleportation gates that the elves built are all called Ayudara. And it's because in Spanish, Ayudara is to help. And teleportation seemed really handy. So I just like, I threw another letter on the end and uh, nobody ever called me on it. Right? You know? Um, so like... You always want to make sure you're not just using the word, but you can start from places and then just add prefixes and suffixes. I, I enjoy how like amusing oneself is in fact a valid way to go about doing this. Like it is absolutely oh, yeah. valid. Like oh like, yeah this, yeah this this wasn't like quite fantasy naming, but the the horses in my last book were named for pizza. There are two pizza places really? in my town that have like names that work well for horses so i named the horses after Perfect. the pizza places like see and that's and it that's the thing me. so it's like i'm keeping it 
this was going to be a placeholder, yeah. but now I'm keeping it. Yeah, and also um, when you're designing fantasy names, uh, common constructions can be useful, like uh, the blank of blank, uh, blank the blank, uh, the blankety blank. You know, <laughs> thinking about uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly the blankety blank. Um, but like thinking about those, sometimes adding just a the somewhere or an adjective can really make a place sound more interesting. Um, and last, you can just make it descriptive. If you already know what the place is um, or vaguely what it is, you can say, okay, well, this is the Storm Shield Archipelago because it's some islands and it's probably really windy out there. Done. Move on. You know, <laughs> so, um, okay. So that's my that's my advice on naming <laughs> stuff really quickly. I love it. I feel like a, a, a kernel from all of these is that you can start almost anywhere find something that floats your boat and then start kicking over the dominoes to see what else is going to fall down the line. So you start somewhere and just play until you get something that you can work with and that that's okay. I think it's necessary. Spreadsheets optional. (laughs) For some of our listeners, spreadsheets are not optional, which is also okay. Even once you decide (laughs) these things, you need to put them somewhere. And <laughs> keep track of them. Yeah. You need to keep right, track right. of this stuff. And thus, you get back to the spreadsheet. So it is our custom here at the at the end of an episode to ask our guests to leave us a little bit of a parting gift to throw into the world that we are co-building together on air and now working on an anthology for. Oh, nice. So um, we, would, we would love to see what little present you have for us to fit into our world somewhere all right so given the theme of improv that i've just spent an hour and a half extolling um it would feel really unfair to prepare something in advance so instead i'm gonna say uh if you guys could give me a natural environment any sort of biome uh can be fantastical can be science fictional can be just something straight out of national geographic give me something and i'll design a creature for it right now Cass looks like she has an idea. I do. A cold climate swamp. A cold swamp. Okay. So a cold swamp, uh, it's going to need something in order to keep from freezing. So maybe it, uh, it sucks up methane from all the plant detritus that is uh, you know, decaying at the bottom of the swamp. And it uses that to uh, both inflate as like a swim bladder and to keep warm, but also it's full of methane. So it actually can shoot fire. Like it comes to the surface. It's one of those fish that like uh, shoots, uh, like shoots water uh, to like knock things out of the trees, except instead it's shooting fire. And um, God, what else would the methane do? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe. What is it? What is it shooting with Please. the fire? Like, is this is this a a predation technique or a a defensive, defensive technique or, or just home building? Is it impressing a mate? <laughs> probably both. Yeah, like probably all of the above. Um, so you've got these fish that are just shooting fire at like the uh, the salamander monkeys brachiating through the trees. Um, but then you got to think, okay, what are what are the locals going to do with these things? Um, maybe they. Uh, I mean, my first thought is you find them, you like 
sew them shut and then like use them as balloons but that seems a little bit too silly <laughs> um but like i don't know maybe uh hmm maybe maybe they can be weaponized somehow or maybe they're no wait they're they're fuel production so this is a more advanced uh society um it's still sort of fantastical uh but these things are producing biofuels so locals have harnessed them and so the only way you refill your airship is by going down to the local swamp and you know setting out uh, a salamander monkey on a string and waiting for all these fish to come to the surface to go shoot at them and then you scoop them up in your net or your tractor beam or whatever um and then you're just like essentially like like stomping wine grapes except that it's fish as you're getting like all of the methane out uh that you use to power your airship blimp and also your flame cannons which you then use and your engines of course um and then uh yeah they're probably delicious as well except that they've been like stomped so like flattened flattened firefish is probably like uh the food of the people like i don't know patties Firefish patties at this point. Yeah. I so imagine now I'm thinking like about a... the salamander monkeys. And... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Does this, does this cross the line from creature to monster for you, Marshall, or no? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying, like, if you, you know, are are they domesticated salamander monkeys? Are these the pets? Or are these, you know, like, why are you, why are, are these the, the item of choice, the creature of choice to use as your bait to catch the firefish? like that's right right i mean maybe they're relatively intelligent maybe they're trained if they're salamander monkeys are they immune to the fire like they can get they can get singed and they're like they're fine because they're salamander monkeys because they're salamanders and they live in fire (laughs) right exactly well you got to figure like if they're the fish's prey um they can't be too good at avoiding it or else the fish would have moved on to something else but they probably have developed some sort of defenses against it um and so maybe they have developed some form of camouflage um maybe the reason they're salamander monkeys is because it's very important that they be cold-blooded because the fish's vision is heat-based and so you need to be very cold and not like cold-blooded in the conventional sense but like their blood is cold so that they won't be visible against the background of the this cold swamp that they live in and so oh my god maybe the salamander monkeys are where you get your coolant from maybe this whole ecosystem like all of their technology just runs on this little food chain in the swamp like i'm imagining there being like a niche social movement that's like stop stomping the firefish it's wrong and ethically reprehensible and we must stop it <laughs> right well and one other thing i'll throw out there is uh also not all like well i think environmental factors and pressures are a good place to start with a monster like not everything that a monster evolves or a creature evolves has to be directly related to uh the environmental th- factor so for instance you could have those salamander monkeys like yeah they've got the cold blood or whatever that helps them avoid the fish uh but also uh maybe they're telepathic maybe there's maybe they're psychic and they're a hive mind and maybe they can communicate with humans as well and like that's why they are so uh revered as pets because they have some sort of limited empathic ability like that's not directly related i mean i guess maybe that's useful because then when one of them gets hit by a firefish all the others around them instantly know and like can scatter 
but uh but like you can also just throw in additional traits i love it i love it so much (laughs) well this has been fun and i am delighted that we now have stomped firefish patties for our next barbecue <laughs> yeah. in our world. This will be fantastic. Right. And this is also an illustration of, remember what we were saying, not everyone has to be a winner. You can always start <laughs> over. But uh, but I feel pretty good about I these sucking confident. up methane from the bottom of the pond. I feel confident. I like that. I like, I like that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, James. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Should I tell people uh, where to find me on the internet? Yes, please yes. tell us where to find you on the okay. internet if we'd like to find you in the future. Self-promotion. Yeah, if you want more of this uh, random prattling, uh, I'm always uh, on my website at jameslsutter.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter for my sins uh, for as long as that lasts at jameslsutter. And I'm on Instagram at james underscore l underscore sutter. And so, yeah, always happy to chat and... Uh, if you enjoyed this please check out dark hearts or the ongoing starfinder comic great thank you hi you Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs> <laughs>